Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you are enjoying this podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the show on a one-time basis uh, via our PayPal link at support.greatdetectives.net. You can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month. Just go to patreon.greatdetectives.net. Now it is time for this week's episode of The Adventures of Sam Spade, the original air date, December the 15th, 1950. And the title is, and I want to be sure I say this correctly, the 25-123-5679 caper. I know, it just rolls off the tongue. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a listen. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Sam Spade, Detective Agency. Me, sweetheart. Heights. What was that last? Uh, nothing. That was my teeth chattering. Oh, is it cold now? Out where I was, Effie, I've been swimming. In December? Oh, Sam, you caught a chill. That's true, Aff. I caught a real Russian chill. They're not keeping San Francisco Bay as well heated as they might. The bay? Sam, you were swimming in the... Where else, Aff? But... Oh, Sam, you've been drinking. Only brine, Angel, and what kelp juice I could scavenge. Kelp juice? Oh, it was a taxing experience, Aff. A lesser man couldn't have come through it. Lay out some dry clothes for me, mix me a hot grog, get out your pencil that writes underwater... And prepare to take down a narrative of international intrigue and espionage, which we will call, let's see, uh, the 25123-5679 caper. What? Or the Russians' number is up. NBC invites you to listen to the greatest private detective of them all, as William Spear, radio's outstanding producer, director of mystery and crime drama, brings you. The Adventures of Sam Spade. Effie! Oh, here I am, Sam. Mm. I was just calling the janitor to see if he could turn on some more heat mm. so you could... Oh, you're not so very wet. Well, I had a dry martini on oh. the way over. Dr. Ames called you a few hours ago. Dr. Oscar Ames. Did he? That was nice. He was worried about you. Mm. Wanted to know if you'd been found yet. He said you two were on a ferry boat... And that he just stepped in to have a cup of coffee, and when he came back... Yes, he... Effie, yes. Well, can't keep the FBI waiting. The, the FBI? Well, who else? You don't think I was playing around with kids on this caper? Oh, no, 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 Sam. I knew they were grown up. Well, take it down, then. In this one, your Uncle Sam was working for his Uncle Sam. They fill it in. To Federal Bureau of Investigation, Washington, D.C. Care of J. Edgar... Oh, no, that'd be too much. Well, why not? From Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, Boris Kargaminsky. Uh, how do you spell that, Sam? Kargaminsky, K-A-R-G... No, I don't mean that. I mean Boris. Oh, I should have known. B-O-R-I-S. Dear sir, 
Last night, I let my secretary off at 5.30 so that she could go and do some Christmas shopping, although I've told her repeatedly that all I want this year is money. The fog was rolling in off the bay, and it was bitter cold as I came out onto the street, pulling my overcoat collar up around my ears. Seemed like the night for spaghetti, a wonderful spaghetti dinner and some pleasant Italian hospitality down at Mama Pizza's restaurant on the Embarcadero opposite the ferry building. So that's where I went. But Mama Pizza had more than hospitality on her mind when she met me at the door. Hey. Oh, I'm so glad to find you. I'm just calling you out. Well, what's the trouble, Mama? Someone been stealing ravioli? Please. It's my cousin, Tony. They tried to kill him. Oh, what happened, Mama? Come on, Sam. You eat with us. Ah. Our table. I'll make Tony tell you. He's gonna feel so good, but he can talk, all right. You're gonna see. <laughs> She led me to the back of the restaurant to the table where the family generally sits. Her daughters, Angelina and Patty, were there with plates of food in front of them. But they weren't eating any of it. They were staring in awe at the man who sat next to them. He was small to start with, but he was even smaller, hunched down in his chair miserably, staring, unseeing, into a glass of wine. On the table in front of him was a battered old concertina. The top of his head was swathed in a clean, new bandage. Sit down, Sam. No, sit no, down. No. This is my cousin, Tony Calucci. Tony, my good friend, Mr. Spade. Hello, Tony. Hello. Go on, Tony. You tell Sam what's happened on you. Sam, mm-hmm. you have your dinner at the same time. Yeah. Don't forget. Tonight, you're going to be my guest. What do you like to eat? Well, Calapini, cacciatori? Well, I don't care, Mama. What's that on, the, on your plate, Angelina? You going to eat that? Well, pass it over, then. Waste not, want not. That's what I always say. Now, what happened on you, Tony? Well, I'm on the boat. Yeah, what boat? The ferry boat. Auckland ferry boat. Uh Don't you never hear my music on the boat? Ah, you play the concertina on the ferry ride. Sure, but no more. Tonight on the six o'clock boat... Oh, boy. Tonight on the six o'clock boat what? I'm a play inside the first by the sandwich place. Oh. And everybody say, oh boy, Tony, you good. You play good. You play some more. Oh. Ten cents a year, five cents, two quarters even. Mm. Then I go upstairs. Oh boy. Oh boy. And? Then I go out on the deck. It's a very misty, foggy, black. I can't see nothing. Now, I'm a very happy. I feel like I play some more. So I'm a walk away back and up and down to the deck and I make a music, see. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, I hear somebody some, say something to me. I can't see nobody. But I hear him. What do you think he said to me? What? What? Cospedor. Cospedor? As in bar? Cospedor. Well. So I'm a say back to him, Cospedor. I still can't see nobody. Then I hear him say... Is that you play Boris? So I get mad. I say, no, I don't play Boris. I play Pagliacci, Tosca, Trovatore. But I don't play Boris. That's a foreign stuff. I see. Then then... I'm, I'm sorry I say that because this fellow, he sounds like he's foreign. So I'm just going to say, look, mister. Oh, boy. What, Tony? What? Patron! I get a head on the, hit on the head, the smash a patron. I fall down, I'm a bleeding. I drop on my concertina, my head's got a big hole on the top. I let out a big yell, then I'm a blackout. Oh, boy. People come running around and go to the lock. There's a doctor on the board. 
They carry me down the stairs and he fixes me up. Otherwise, I'm a die for sure. Well, what did it feel like? What did he hit you with? Well, it feel like a baseball bat. My doctor, he... Oh, 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 look, here's the doctor now, just to come in. Hey, doc! The doctor looked in our direction when Tony called and strode over to the table, a big six-foot-three blonde guy in the Joel McRae, Gary Cooper tradition. You had to like him right away. No bedside manner to this doctor, although he could have had as much of it as he liked. He was all business and no kidding. I thought I told you to go to bed and stay there. Well, Doc, I just well, you want... You may have a concussion, Tony. I'll be back here in an hour, and then we'll take some x-rays. My name is Sam Spade, Doctor. I'm a friend of the family. Oh, Ames. Dr. Oscar Ames, how are you? Yeah. Dr. Ames, can I get you something to eat? Tomorrow? No, thanks, Mama. Smells wonderful, but I haven't time. Oh, I'll have a cup of coffee, maybe. Sure. You want time to make a Tony go to bed? Yeah. Go on now, Tony. Go lie down. I'll be back, and we'll check you over. Get some rest in the meantime. All right, all right, my Dr. Ames. I don't know. X-rays, the whole thing. I don't know how I'm going to pay you. Never mind that. That's why we charge our Knob Hill patients a little extra, so we're able to do something like this once in a while. This will be on me, Tony. You're good, the kind of man, the doctor. I, I don't know what to say. You... you go on and lie down, Tony. You're embarrassing the doctor. All right, all right. Screwy thing, this one, isn't it, doctor? Sure is. Here's to your oh, thanks, Mama. Yeah, sure is. Homicidal maniac looks like, Mr. Spade. Oh. Spade? Sam's? Are you the detective? Yeah, that's right. Well, I know about you. You did something for a colleague of mine. Murphy? Dr. Raoul Murphy? Murphy? Murphy. Yeah, I did a job for him last summer. Yeah, he gave you a great send-off. He said, what is all this tonight down here? Detectives? Police? Police? How do you mean? Well, I think there were police. Five or six plain clothes guys. They were waiting here on this side when the ferry pulled into the slip. They're still there holding the boat. I just left them. Well, what were they doing? Talked to all the passengers as they came off. Asked us for identification. Mm-hmm. Hey, what do they think about Tony's little experience getting knocked on the head? Oh, they were mighty interested, naturally. Especially when I told them how I thought the wound had been inflicted. Which was? Gun butt. Gun butt, eh? Well, I'd say so. Lord knows I saw enough of those in the war. The Russians used to club prisoners over the head that way to save ammunition. Huh. And then fling the guys into the river. Oh, hey, I've got to go. Take that dreary ride again. What, the ferry? Yeah, I've got a patient over in Oakland. Had to come back over here to pick up some serum. Phoned my nurse, and she met me just out here. Well, nice to have seen you, Sam. Oh, tell, uh, what's his name? Tony. Hey, wait a minute, Doc. I've got nothing to do. I'll ride over with you. A little air won't do this dinner any harm. We crossed the street, went into the ferry building. Everything was normal enough for the main waiting room where I stopped to buy cigarettes and a pocket flashlight. But outside on the dock where the Oakland boat was waiting to take off, there were a number of extra characters whom you wouldn't think would have chosen a dismal, chilly night like this for waterfront lounging. There wasn't anybody I knew, and in any gathering of plain clothesmen, local variety, I generally spot one or two familiar faces. Dr. Ames and I got aboard, followed by three of these gentlemen. The broadest one, who was built for endurance, exchanged pleasantries with us as the boat moved out into the water. Hello, Dr. Ames. I see you didn't miss the boat, like the old saying. No. Oh, you're one of the fellows I talked to before when we landed. Yeah, that's right. I don't think I got your name. Connolly. Connolly, this is Mr. Spade. Yeah? Would that be Lieutenant Connolly or Sergeant, maybe? Just Connolly. No special title. How's the little fella doing, Doctor? Colucci? Tony? He's under care. He, uh, talk anymore? Say anything interesting? I didn't talk to him. Mr. Spade here did. 
Oh. Really? Really. What do you have to say? Well, you see, I'm an old friend of his family. What he told me was in confidence, and I'd really have to know a little more about who I'm telling his secrets to. I see. Spade, your name was? Still is. Nice to meet you, Gospadin. Gospadin? Means nothing to you, huh? It might. Gospadin sounds like another word. Somebody might think you said cuspidor. <laughs> That's very funny. Hey, are you going to stay out here on deck? We haven't made up our minds. Is that okay? I'll go inside, have a little coffee at the snack bar. It's comfortable. Ride's over before you know it. Out here it's foggy, wet, and miserable. Uh, well, I'm going in. I'll see you later. Goodbye, Doctor. Well, maybe he's right, although I must say he's not my favorite man in the world, and Mr. Connolly. It is strictly pneumonia weather out here on deck. Shall we go in? Not just yet for me, Doctor. I think I'll stretch my legs a little. Doc, tell me, where was it that Tony got caught? On the upper deck, I know, but which side? Uh, we were turned around now. Uh, starboard. Just about directly above where we're standing. Yeah, right. Uh, 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 uh. Don't point, Doc. Our friend Connolly and his boys are on their way out to see us. Uh-uh, no, they went back in. You think they're as mysterious as they seem? Oh, definitely that. You know what made them turn back just now? Decide it wasn't necessary to check whether we were still here? No, what? They can't make us out out here. It's too dark. But they can see two lighted cigarettes. Sam Spade detected. Mm-hmm. Look, even in the face of pneumonia, you want to get up there and look around where Tony was, don't you? I do. Well, then hand me your cigarette, and I'll smoke them both a yard apart, and we'll both be here. Except you. Oscar Ames, M.D. Masterful thinking, Doc. Go ahead, I'll be here. So I trod the slippery stairs to the upper deck. The fog was as wet as rain. I couldn't see any more than inches ahead of me with my flashlight. Finally, I stopped about a midship and looked down over the rail. Ames and his two cigarettes, tiny red dots of light that grew brighter every now and then as he puffed at them, were almost directly beneath me, so I knew I was just about right. A sudden noise over my head made me shoot my light up toward it. It came from a piece of canvas that had suddenly ripped loose, the canvas that covered the top of a lifeboat. I got up there somehow and perched precariously, holding onto two steel supports with one arm. The piece of canvas had been ripped open with a knife, a hole large enough for a man's body to get through. And that's what was in there, sprawled in the bottom of the lifeboat, a man's body. He'd been stabbed in the neck. This was the man who had slugged Tony, or so it seemed, because the gun was still clenched in his right hand, barrel reversed. There was nothing in his pockets, just a handkerchief and two dollars in change. But my flash caught a speck of something white in one of his shoes. It was a bit of paper with two typewritten lines on it. I let myself down to the deck, rubbed the circulation back into my arm where I'd been holding on and prepared to read the note. And that's when my flashlight went dead. I groped about, cursing them for not checking their batteries until I found a faint, ghostly glimmer of light overhead, out over the edge of the ship on the outside of the rail. I climbed over, steadied myself against lurching, and lit a couple of matches. It said, International Postcard Shop, Geary Street, SF, greeting card for Boris. I put the bit of paper in my pocket and turned to climb back over the rail. And then something came at me from the black. It caught me full in the center of the forehead. And as I staggered, came again like a block of wood right on the top of my head. It made it burn with sudden fire. Tiny points of light glittered in the blackness came rushing toward me and grew larger, and I fell crashing over the side. (laughs) 
They tell you a lot about what you remember when you're going down for the third time. You know what I remembered? I remembered that Gaspedin is Russian for comrade. Sam Spade, detective. You are listening to the weekly adventure of radio's most famous detective, Sam Spade. Imagine the greatest names in stage, screen, and radio. People like Bob Hope, Rosalind Russell, Meredith Wilson, Frankie Lane, and many, many others. Imagine an hour and a half of the very finest in comedy, music, and drama. Imagine all this rolled into one wonderful program, presided over by the distaff dynamo, Tallulah Bankhead. Well, NBC has the program. It's the big show, heard every Sunday night over most of these stations. All this and Tallulah, too. No wonder it's the big show. And Sunday evening also means Theater Guild on the air. This Sunday, Theater Guild presents Boomerang, starring Kirk Douglas. And now back to the 25123-5679 caper. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. I found myself mechanically keeping afloat somehow and trying to get out of my overcoat. My eyes burned. I felt heavy and logged, as if I'd swallowed gallons of water. My head began to clear a little, but with returning consciousness came increased pain. Pretty bad, too. From out of the misty blanket, from every direction, in a dozen different keys, from near and far, foghorn sounded. I knew that by now the current had swept me out of the path of the Oakland ferries. The water was chilling me. I turned over and began swimming, just hard enough to keep the blood circulating. The lights of a boat came into sight suddenly, and I threw back my head and yelled. But the horn crying its warning drowned me out, and the boat went on, and the fog closed in behind me. And then I found myself full of a strange and wonderful weariness. The water wasn't cold anymore. I was warm with a comfortable, soothing numbness, and I knew what to do. I'd swim until I didn't hear the noise of the horns anymore, and then in the quiet of the friendly fog, go to sleep. So I began to doze. And then some lights came out of my eyes, and I wanted to stay in the dark, and I turned my face down into the embrace of the water. And then I, I wasn't where you'd expect at all. I was lying on a baggage truck that was moving. People were crowding around, walking beside the truck, staring at me. The guy in uniform, wheeling me, noticed I had my eyes open. Well, hello, pal. Welcome back to the United States. Hello, what part of the United States? Just landing in Sausalito. Uh, Lay still. We'll take you over to the hospital. Sausalito. How long before this boat gets back to San Francisco? Right away. Well, I'm going with Hey, wait, sir. You ain't in no condition. Thanks, I'll be okay. Half an hour later, shivering and shaking in my wet clothes, keeping my mouth clamped tight so my teeth wouldn't sound like a dice game, I climbed into a taxi at the ferry building and went to my apartment. There I swallowed half a pint of whiskey and rubbed myself with a coarse towel until my skin was sore. Then I looked in the pocket of the soggy suit I'd hung up to dry. It was still there, a piece of paper from the dead man's shoe, damp but legible. International postcard shop, Geary Street, SF. Reading card for Boris. 
I got up to put on a dry suit and then changed my mind. Put the wet one back on. Good evening. Are you the proprietor here? Yes, that's right, sir. Six years at the same location. Oh, you, uh... My goodness, is it raining out? You really got... Ah, dowsing? Yes, I did. Nice collection of postcards from all over, eh? South America, every place. Yes, yes. I pride myself on having the most complete possible selection. Uh, Was there something you had especially in mind? Yes, there was. Oh? I'm looking for a greeting card for Boris. You... What's the matter? Didn't you hear me? Yes. Didn't you understand? Well, I... Well, what? It's only that I didn't exactly expect somebody like you. What did you expect? Somebody slinking around in a false mustache, wearing dark glasses and an Inverness cape? No, I... You know, you know, with your type of thinking, you may not be the right man for this job, Gaspagian. Now, now, wait, please, Mr. Luboff. I I thought you were dead. You drowned. Yeah, who told you that? Well, you know. Yeah, well, I didn't drown. I jumped in the water when I heard him coming. You can see how wet I still am. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, So you escaped. Easily. Enough talk. Hand it over. The greeting card for Boris. Very well. Let's see. That's San Francisco, of course. He turned and reached down onto the counter. I slipped my hand under my armpit and held my 38 ready in case he came up with something similar. But all he brought forth was a box marked special. On this, he expected something and handed it to me. I took it with a knowing expression on my face, but I didn't know from nothing as to what it meant. All it was was an ordinary postcard, that's all. A picture postcard showing the Golden Gate Bridge. Underneath it, the caption... Wonder Cities of the World, number 25, 1235679, San Francisco. Nothing else. I was afraid my mouth was open. What's the matter? Matter? Don't you know how to read the name? It's so difficult, of course. Idiot, certainly I know how. I was just admiring the work, that's all. It is excellent, isn't it? Look, you'd better go now. You've been in here an awfully long time. We don't want to... No, of course we don't. I'll go, Gaspadian. Gaspadian... I'm sorry to have been overly cautious. There is no such thing as over-caution. Thank you. You were so... Well, you seem like an American. So do you. I strode out onto the street, clutching my postcard, but I shoved it inside my sleeve a moment later because who I saw standing under the misty glimmer of a streetlight waiting for me was my heavy-set, mysterious friend from the ferry boat, Connolly. I turned my head around and glanced down the other end of the block behind me. Two other guys were there, sure enough. And they advanced slowly toward me with their hands raised, palms out, as if they were showing me they weren't carrying guns. I reached my hand inside for mine all the same. But I never got to use it, because Connolly rushed me from the other side. I, I caught him on the chin and he went down, clattering into an ash can. The other two boys grabbed me and held my arms behind me. Connolly got up, rubbing his face, and I waited to get murdered. But no. All right, Joe Lewis. Bring him along. And so they did. We didn't go far, though, just around the corner to a little hamburger place that had a sign in the door saying closed, although there were lights inside. Connolly knocked on the door, and a fellow with an apron came and opened it and locked it after us. Connolly gave him a nod, and we sat down at a table while he brought us coffee. Spade, we've checked on you. You seem to be okay. You stand in good with the department, friend. What department would that be, friend? This department. F-B-I. Oh, ho. Now, maybe you can help. Anyhow, we don't want you going around making a noise and messing it up for us, so here it is. I'm all ears. 
Did you ever hear of a man called Boris Kargaminsky? No. Well, not many people have, even in Russia. Boris Kargaminsky is the top Soviet agent in America. He's the head man. He organizes and runs everything for them here. I see. Now, he came to this country seven years ago and vanished. We've been trying to find him ever since. False passport, of course. That didn't help. There's nothing anywhere on Kargaminsky. No pictures, not even in Russia. No fingerprints, nothing. Every lead we had, dead end. And then we got word last week... Go ahead, drink your coffee. Oh, I'm too interested. We got word last week that another agent, an unimportant little guy named Lubov, was on his way to San Francisco and that he would definitely have to contact the big gun. Hmm. Something to do with the Chinese war business that only Kargaminsky is big enough to handle. Well, our man tailed Lubov all the way out here and then he lost him. The Oakland Ferry. Hmm. Well, that didn't bother us very much. He called us and we were waiting on this end. But in pulls the ferry and no Lubov. Lubov was the dead man in the lifeboat. Right. He must have been up there waiting to be contacted. Yeah, then he heard Tony and his concertina, thought this might be it. And then when he realized he'd made a mistake and uncovered himself, he conked Tony on the head. Right. And his Soviet contact got scared of investigations on the boat following Tony's hue and cry and stabbed Lubov. So, now we're back where we started. Every passenger on that ferry was okay. What's that you're looking at? Picture postcard. Found a message on Lubov about the international postcard shop and a greeting for... Hey. Hey, a greeting for Boris. Boris Kargaminsky. Now, let me see that. I bulldozed the guy in the shop to let me have it. Looks like nothing. It's just a picture. But he said he... He said I could read the name. Give me it. Golden Gate. No. Oh, these numbers. Wonder Cities of the World. Number 25123-5679. Hey, wait a minute. What? They print out the guy's name, Boris. All right. B... O R I S. Leave a space. K A R G A M E N S K Y. Now put numbers. Uh, oh, wait a minute. The top number is nine. Yeah. All right. Put uh, one, two, three, four, five over Boris, and then start again. One, uh-huh. two, three, up to nine over Kargaminsky. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Now it's the postcard. Two, five. One, two, three, five, six, seven, nine. Okay. What's two? Two. Two is a. Uh, o. Five. S. Oh, S. Now, Kargaminsky. One? Uh, K. Two, three? A R. O S K A R. Well, well, I guess we know the rest of it. Five, six, seven, nine. A M E S, correct? Correct. Oscar Ames. Dr. Oscar Ames. Hmm. What? I was just thinking. He was worried about me catching pneumonia. <laughs> I called Mama Pizza, and from what she said, we knew where to go. We picked him up at the emergency hospital. He was just finishing the operation on Tony's head. We watched him through the glass, and the other young doctor standing alongside us said he was one of the greatest surgeons they'd ever seen. When he unrolled his gloves and took off his operating mask, he looked up and saw me, alive, and the other boys with me. His scalp tightened for just a second, and then he smiled. It was when he reached into his bag that we rushed him, before he could get the little red bottle to his lips. Period. End of report. Oh, Sam. A spy story. Yes, it was, F. Everything. A, a chase and being thrown in the water and mysterious people and, and a cold message. I'm glad it kept you awake, Angel. Sam. Hmm? What is it like not to want to be in America? Not to want to live the way we do in America? I can't imagine, sweetheart. I can't either. Sam, about Dr. Ames. Yeah? Do you think that, um... I mean, the way you described him and all, 
Do you think you made him sound too sympathetic? Oh, I described him as he was, that's all. But will anybody think that, uh... Well, you know, he, he was attractive. But you missed the whole point, didn't you? Spies don't go around wearing monocles and talking with heavy accents and acting like spies. Not the good ones. It's the attractive, lovable, trustworthy strangers that are dangerous. Now, if you'd met Dr. Ames at a party somewhere, you'd be out with him at a nightclub right now, cooing over a drink and giving him the plans for the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Sometimes don't I can't... Don't get mad, Sam. I don't even know where Brooklyn is. Lucky for our side. You don't hate me, do you, Sam? No, oh, come Now, does that answer your question? Completely. Good night, Sam. Good night, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade are produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade was played by Stephen Dunn. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. Script for tonight's adventure by William Spear. Musical scoring by Lud Gluskin, conducted by Robert Armbruster. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. There's no cover charge at Duffy's Tavern. Just keep your dial tuned to NBC later as Archie the manager and his delightful friends cook up another mad and merry session at that remarkable restaurant, Duffy's Tavern. This Sunday, the big show comes your way on NBC again. An hour and a half of the best in comedy, music, and drama with guests Bob Hope, Martin and Lewis, Rosalind Russell, Frankie Lane, and unpredictable Tallulah as MC. Go ahead, tell them about The Thing. Oh, yes. Sam Spade and Effie asked me to remind you about The Thing. The Thing for Kids for Christmas. You know, The Thing can be anything you think an underprivileged child would like for Christmas. In your town, there are civic groups who are cooperating with this Thing for Kids campaign. Send your new or used toys to the collection centers in your town and help make some child's Christmas brighter. It'll make you happier, too. Thank you. again next week, same time, for another adventure with Sam Spade. Enjoy the magnificent Montague, then it's Duffy's Tavern on NBC. Welcome back. I'll say this. If the Soviets were using ciphers that could be decoded by a private eye over coffee without use of special books or equipment, it's no wonder they lost the Cold War. Though it should be said that there's a reason that they call Sam Spade the greatest private eye of them all. And there's also explains why Sam was able to return to San Francisco by boat after nearly being drowned to death and probably concussed. Having a recent concussion is probably the normal state for Sam Spade. It is the near superheroic resiliency of the hard-boiled private eye, at least over radio.
Of course, uh, the this episode is in the context of the trouble that the series had had as a result of Red Channels and Dashiell Hammett's ties to some radical groups. Although this would be far from the only series to have a Cold War plot, and you didn't have to be in trouble with anyone to throw a little cloaking dagger in. Pat Novak for Hire had a plot that did that. These sort of plots were pretty popular with the public, and there were a lot of different programs that would throw in Russian spies as a solution. And it kind of makes for variety. You know, it can turn out to be counterfeiting drug smugglers or Russian spies. Really, you've got a gamut of options. Though I think to many modern-day listeners, it'll automatically be assumed to be entirely about the controversy around the show, which I'm not certain that that's the case. Because logically, if you're tuning out because of Dashiell Hammett, this, uh, you know, you wouldn't hear this episode. And it's not going to be repeated. So, essentially, you're the people you would be making this episode to or targeting are no longer listening to the program. But then again, people don't always act logically. And someone at the network could have thought it was a good idea to do this and may have uh, mandated this sort of plot because people at networks tend to act less logically than anyone else. All right, well, listener comments and feedback now. We have a couple of reactions to our Maltese Falcon special. And we have a comment from Greg who writes uh, over on Facebook, I loved it, a totally enjoyable rendition of the Maltese Falcon. Keep up the great work. And then uh, Carrie emails in, I enjoyed hearing the Lux Radio Theater version of the Maltese Falcon. I agree that Edward G. Robinson's take on Spade was different than Humphrey Bogart's, maybe a little less manic and or more detached. I also agree that Robinson is less attracted to O'Shaughnessy, which to me rings truer. The one complaint I have with the movie is how Spade really does seem to fall for her more than was merited. Uh, Carrie, that's a fair point of view. I keep going back and forth because I think that there is something logical about the way that Robinson portrayed Spade. And I think you can make a good case that it's far closer to what Dashiell Hammett wrote. But there's something about Bogart's performance that just absolutely holds me. It is maybe the manic turns of it, as well as if you've never read the book or watched the movie, there's a certain unpredictable quality to him. And a question of what does he really think? What does he really fail? And at the end, you find how invested and conflicted his uh, take on Spade is. Now, it does not actually make a whole lot of sense. But it's so well performed, it gets you to buy it. So, it's just the drama in my soul, I guess. Carrie also says, uh, regarding Laird uh, Kriegar, Gutman in the radio program, I looked him up on Wikipedia and was saddened to learn that he died at 
age 31, just two years after the Maltese Falcon radio program. Apparently, he went on a crash diet for his role in the lodger, and it was so hard on his system that he had a heart attack and died soon after. One of Kriegar's uh, roles was as a police detective in the movie I Wake Up Screaming, which also starred Victor Monsieur, Betty Grable, and Carol Landis. A bonus uh, with this movie is that it also has Elisha Cook Jr., who of course played Wilmer in the Maltese Falcon movie. It's a good and warm movie, and I'll definitely check that out, Carrie. It had been on my list as one to view, and I've read up on it even more after Carrie's email, and it does look like a worthwhile uh, experience. I put up a poll on YouTube regarding Sam Spade and Howard Duff's uh, performance, and received a comment from Chris who writes, when we were kids in Ireland, we used to get potato crisp, uh, or as we call them, the U.S. chips, called Sam Spuds, and remember a picture on the bag of a potato with a fedora and a trench coat. Well, thanks so much for that image, Chris, and I appreciate the story. And of course, there is that debate, actually, as to what's better, the crisp that you'll get in the UK and parts of Europe, or the potato chips in the United States. I've been curious about, and I actually, a small amount of British crisp, and I'll give them a try and see how I like them. What were we talking about again? Oh, Sam Spade. Uh, so we received some comments uh, regarding Steve Dunn, his first episode, and Dunn versus Howard Duff, and we're going to go ahead and go through those. And we start with Eric, who writes, Nothing against Dunn, but I feel like he's still stuck doing a half impression of the cadence of Duff while trying to bring his own twist. It must have been limiting as an actor to step into Spade's shoes after the character having so many years of expectations about how Spade sounded. Back then, the character was the thing, and they would often swap out actors. They even swapped Gildersleeves. When they swap Johnny Dollars, it's still recognizably the same character, but with a slightly different feel. But here, it still seems like an imitation. Well, uh, thanks for the comment, Eric. I, I think, uh, and this was in regards to the very first episode uh, with Steve Dunn, which pretty much all the comments we're going to be reading are... Anytime you have one of those shifts, it can feel a little bit weird. Like, I even think of the first Edmund O'Brien episodes of Johnny Dollar or the first John Lund episodes of Johnny Dollar. Oftentimes, as was the case with the Over My Dead Body Caper, they're using a script that was originally written for the previous actor. Or, if they're not using a script that was for the previous actor, the writers are still writing for the previous actor, for the previous portrayal and the way that he played it. It can take a while for both the writers and the actor to really develop a rhythm and for them to come up with a new interpretation and to have that fully fleshed out. I think Dunn uh, does that quite a bit, though I can definitely understand how that 
first episode had that feeling of, you know, this guy's trying to wear somebody else's shoes. And it's always the challenge for the actor to make the role his own. Ronser wrote uh, over on YouTube, this guy will never get anyone to forget Howard Duff. That part is true, because I think all these decades later, Duff Spade is better remembered, as is Duff himself. Pete writes, The theme of this episode, Sam being presumed dead, only to reappear very much alive, would have been a lot more poignant if Howard Duff had been still playing the role. You can try to kill him, but not even the Red Scare can keep a good detective or actor done. With Dunn, it's almost as if they're saying, we know this isn't the same guy, but close enough even with no cigar. I think it's fair to say that they were trying to have it both ways, not having Howard Duff, but still trying to build on the success of Sam Spade with a different actor. And I think it was something that people at NBC didn't quite fully get. All the feedback that they got was not from people who just wanted a series called Sam Spade. It was from people who wanted Howard Duff back on the radio playing Sam Spade. And without that, it just doesn't stand out from all the other detective series. I still think there are some really good cases or capers, but it's definitely not the same series. And then another listener on YouTube writes, I enjoyed Steve Dunn more than I thought I was going to. Looking forward to the rest of the series now. An actor in Mr. Dunn's predicament is a thankless job to be sure. Ironically, Howard Duff found himself in a similar situation years later. On Four Star Playhouse, Dick Powell created a wonderful character named Dante, and I think he did four episodes through the run of that series. Dante proved popular enough to warrant a series, but Dick Powell didn't want to do a weekly show, but as the show's producer, he cast Howard Duff to take over the role. I just can't watch Duff's Dante. I feel like I'm being ripped off, and being that it only lasted one season, maybe everybody else did too. Uh, well, it's worth uh, talking about ever so briefly, but Four Star Playhouse was an anthology series where each of the episodes featured one of four stars, although they bent the rules a little bit. Uh, Frank Lovejoy starred in an episode that was a backdoor pilot to Nightbeat, which we played a few years back, and wasn't one of the four. But that was the general rule, and he did create this character, Dante. He did four episodes with Dante in season four, and I don't know how many are actually circulating around, but he appeared eight times total in the course of the four-year run of the four-star playhouse. And Powell was really in the most fulfilling part of his career, where he was creating rather than doing all acting all the time. Four Star Playhouse ended in 1956, and they wouldn't actually spin off Dante into its own series until 1960, so already that's not really striking while the iron is hot. That the series only lasted one season, I wouldn't read a whole lot into, because there were a lot of good television programs that didn't make it more than... uh, 
a full season. One thing to keep in mind is when you've only got three networks, the competition is stiff. You know, it's not like today where you can attract 1.2% of people and turn off everybody else and have a successful TV program. I don't know if that was the problem, the the same one that Dunn uh, was confronting uh, that Duff ended up dealing with in taking over as Dante. Uh, he goes on to say, my first encounter with Howard Duff was as a child watching a rerun of The Virginian. There's an episode in which Howard Duff and Ida Lupino then married to each other and also, ironically, a star on Four Star Playhouse guest starred. A year or two later, he co-starred in Robert Altman's obscure 1978 film The Wedding, which my grandmother and I saw in the movie theater. I think we were one of a handful of people in attendance. I don't know if it holds up 45 years later, but at the time I thought it was a great comedy and should be better known. It got everybody from Desi Arnaz to Lillian Gish to pre-Mindy Pam Dauber in it. How could you possibly go wrong? Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you sharing that experience. And then finally, we have this from James, who writes, Howard Duff is so good that it took me a long time to realize that I like Stephen Dunn more. I feel that the show became funnier with him as Sam. Thank you so much. I appreciate all your comments. And now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And I want to go ahead and thank JL. JL has been one of our Patreon supporters since November 2020, currently supporting the program at the Shamus level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, JL. And that will do it for today. If you are enjoying this podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. And please rate and review the show wherever you download us from. We'll be back next Monday with another episode of Sam Spade, but join us back here tomorrow for yours truly, Johnny Dollar, where... Dollar? That's right. Mr. Bennett? Come in, come in. I'm not going to ask you to sit down. I know why you're here. You have insurance investigator written all over your face. Well, in that case, we can get right down to the business at hand. What caused the fire? I don't know yet. It was deliberate. What? Somebody started that fire, that's what. And I know who. Get him and you'll save yourself some work. Tony Midas. Tony Midas? Who's that? The crackpot that set fire to my building. He's out of prison now and he swore he'd get me. Well, now look, maybe you'd better tell me just who he is and why he'd want to get you. Tony Midas worked for me once. I caught him stealing money and I prosecuted him. He was sent to prison for five years. And he's the one you want. You seem pretty certain of that. Of course I'm certain of it. I know what enemies I have, what friends... Don't tell me I'm going to have to pussyfoot around with someone like you and get any place in this whole affair. Well, there are some witnesses who got a look at the man who started the fire, or at least it's a good bet he's the one we're after. So tell me, what does this Tony Minus look like? I don't remember. I hardly ever remember faces. But you remembered his threat. You bet your last nickel I remember his threat. And he's the kind of screwy punk to carry it out. Last week there was a small story in the newspaper that he was being released from prison. Well, then we'll certainly look him up and have a talk with him. That's very good of you, I'm sure. Oh, now, look, this can be a very difficult thing all the way around, or we can all cooperate, Mr. Bennett. I'll cooperate. I know why you're in town. I know who you came with. I met that glorified fire inspector yesterday. Underwood, you people don't fool me, and I'm not trying to fool you. Get Tony Midas, and you've got your man. Did you tell the police about Midas? No, I was waiting for some bird like you to walk in here with your high-handed attitude. 
Now I've told you, now you can get out and get busy looking for them. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter, our Radio Detectives, and check us out on Instagram, Instagram.com slash GreatDetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.